Lord, we ask you for more. More of your work upon us as we open up your word. I need your work in my own heart, Lord, to, to be truthful to the scriptures, to be in line with your heart, the things that are behind these truths we're talking about. And I pray, Lord, for your help upon me. And I pray that you would deeply plant the truth of justification in our hearts, that it would be there in a way that would last us from now till the day we die and go to be with you, that we would live in the forgiveness and the confidence of justification, that we would unpack that and understand that this morning. So bring your power upon us, Lord, right now, and upon me especially. Help me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me start with a recap of last Sunday's teaching. Last Sunday, we tackled the topic of sin in a big way. And the purpose for spending a whole week drilling deep into the topic of sin was so that we could experience what Jesus describes in Luke chapter 7. Remember the story of the the woman of ill repute who came to Jesus? Read it. It's in Luke 7. But what he says there is that if we love Jesus little, it's because we only think we've needed to be forgiven little. Which means that the way to love Jesus more is to grow to see how much more we've been forgiven for. And so that was our aim last week, was to dig deep into what the scriptures teach about our sins so we'll see how much we've been forgiven so that we can see how much Jesus has done for us and love him all the more. That was our aim. Our our aim was not, I mentioned this last week, to leave us discouraged or to send us away from Jesus uh, in in, uh, destruction and pain and he doesn't want me to come to him. The whole point was to lead us to Jesus so we see how much he's forgiven us for and we love him more. And so last week we looked at our past sinfulness. In fact, I want to I'm going to use this later on, but I'll put it up here right now. Here's a description of what we were like before we were saved. Okay, I made a list of top 30 sins there. And uh, the point is that before Jesus saved us, we sinned. And we saw last week, it's shocking how much the Bible says we sinned before Jesus saved us. The Bible says in Genesis 6-5, something Moses writes, Romans 3, what Paul writes, that we only sinned. We didn't do anything good. And the reason that the Bible can say that, which is a shocking thought to us, is that God is at the very center of the universe. He's the center of all reality. And anything that's not God-word is sin. It's out of sync with reality. So any action we take that isn't motivated by God's goodness and independent upon God's sustaining and isn't for God's glory is sin. Romans 14.23, whatever is not from faith is sin. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. So all we did before we were saved was sin. And if that's a brand new thought for you, I am very sympathetic. It should shake you to the core. May it happen, Lord, so we love Jesus more. Because if you don't get that, your love for Jesus won't be what it could be. And I want you to love Jesus. That's what we're about here. 
And so if that shakes you, bring it on, man. Let it just shake, okay? Let it happen. And dig into Genesis 6-5, Romans 3-10-12, Romans 14-23, and Hebrews 11-6. Ponder deeply those passages so that you'll love Jesus more. Okay, so that's what we talked about in terms of our, our sin before we were saved. And, and so because sin is against God, it dishonors an infinitely glorious God, that means that God in his righteousness responds with wrath and anger. It's right for him to do that. Absolutely right. And so before we were saved, each of us were under God's wrath. You've got to feel that. If you're going to love Jesus, you've got to get that. Don't shy away from that. See it. Feel it. Love Jesus for his death on the cross because of it. Now again, the point wasn't to discourage us so we slip away from Jesus. The point was so we come to Jesus, embrace all the more deeply what he's done for us, and let that fill us with love for him. Now also, it's not just that we needed to be forgiven before we were saved. How many of you have sinned this last week? How many of you saved people have sinned this last week? Okay, I have already this morning. Um, Now that's in spite of the fact, though, that God, when he saves us, does a powerful work. He changes us. He makes us into new creations, right? The old has passed away, the new has come. We are redeemed, we're justified, which is the whole topic we're going to be unfolding this morning. We're born again, given a brand new nature, which is our topic for next Sunday. We're adopted into his family, we're loved, we're reconciled, this amazing list. And and God takes people who've only sinned and he changes us so that we start to become righteous and we become more and more and more righteous throughout our lives. But until heaven, we will never be entirely free from sin. So it's also helpful for us to acknowledge what the Bible teaches and that we do still sin. It's what the Bible calls indwelling sin. Like I said, I've sinned this morning already. And, and the point of recognizing that again is not to discourage us, it's just the truth. When we see it, we'll love Jesus all the more. There's, oh, there's more than I need to be forgiven for. Yes, stuff today, yesterday, tomorrow. And there's benefits that come when we get in touch with the fact that we have sinned as saved people. Lots of benefits. It humbles you, right? Humility is a good, good thing. It humbles you. It makes you more open to brothers and sisters coming alongside you and saying, can I mention something to you? Is this maybe a blind spot? We should be open to that because I've got blind spots. You've got blind spots. God uses us in each other's lives. So realizing that there's sin in indwelling sin in me should make me open to that. It makes me more reliant on Jesus' grace because left to myself, I will only sin today. And so it makes me more reliant on Jesus' grace to keep me. The good work he started, he will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. So it makes me more reliant on Jesus. It makes me less judgmental of other people. Like I said last week, I know my sin far more than I know yours, because I know my heart. I don't know your heart. So nobody who I see should I think is more sinful than me, because I know the depth of my own, and that should humble me before other people and not be quick to judge and be critical of other people. The list goes on and on. The bottom line is, the more we see our past and present sinfulness, the more we will love Jesus. And so if your love for Jesus is small... The good news is there's a way to have it grow large, and that is to realize how much you've been forgiven. He who loves little, sorry, he who loves little thinks he's been forgiven little, 
which means if you want to love much, you realize you've been forgiven for much. Okay, so all that is an introduction, which is also point like one and two on your notes there. So before we were saved, our position before God was under his wrath. Not very popular maybe to talk about that. doesn't sound very positive, but it's true, and you need to know it, church. If you love Jesus, you got to fess up to that. It's just the truth. But what God is more excited about than wrath is mercy. Because mercy displays his full glory more than wrath does. And so God has decided for a, a globe full of people like this to save a vast number that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. So God, in passionate, joyful mercy, has decided to save. Now, the question is, how, how do you save people like this? How do you do that? There's two things that are required, and these are the two takeaways I want you to walk away with this morning. Two words, both start with the letter P, okay? The first thing that's required is, because God is just and has to punish all of this sin, the first P is that punishment is required, and if I'm going to be saved, someone else has to be punished for these sins, besides me. So there must be punishment upon another in order for me to be saved, right? Because if another isn't punished, I'm going to be punished. So that's the first requirement. The only way God can save anybody is if there's punishment put upon another. But it's not enough just to like to wash all this clean and to have there be no sin there. I also need to be morally blameless and have been credited moral perfection in order to come into God's presence because God is too pure to behold evil, as the book of Habakkuk says. So that's the second P, perfection, moral perfection. Two requirements for you to be saved and forgiven and welcomed into God's presence. Punishment by another and moral perfection earned by another given to you because you're not going to earn it. Okay, too late, right? Do you realize it's too late for you to earn moral perfection? Do you understand that? Just think about yesterday. Okay, it's too late, all right? So it's too late to earn moral perfection. So if we're going to have moral perfection, somebody else needs to have lived it and then needs to credit it to our accounts. Punishment's needed. Perfection's needed. How's God going to do that? He's given us some hints in the Old Testament. Start number four here. This is the, the Exodus. Remember the ten plagues upon Egypt. The last plague was the killing of the firstborn son. And God established the Passover. He said to the people of Israel, if you will kill a lamb, kill a lamb, and take the blood and put it on the doorposts, the angel of death will pass over. That's where the word Passover comes from. Pass over your house. Your firstborn won't be killed. But get this. Any Israelite family who didn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, what would happen to their firstborn son? Killed. The only difference is whether the blood of the lamb is on the doorposts. It makes no difference if you're Israelite or not. Your son would be killed if the blood of the lamb wasn't on the doorposts. And God established then the Passover meal every year. People of Israel, families would celebrate the Passover meal together to remember. So here's a picture of, huh, punishment. Another lamb is punished, so judgment passes over us. A hint of what's to come. Second hint, number six there, is the animal sacrifices. You can read in Leviticus' first four chapters. Old Testament, if you sinned, you would bring a lamb 
to the priests, and the priest would say, put your hand on the lamb's head, and you would put your hand on the lamb's head, symbolically transferring your guilt upon the lamb. The priest would hand you a knife and say, okay, cut its throat, kill it. You would kill the lamb. There's a symbolic transferring of guilt from you to another who's punished in your place. The lamb was without blemish. The lamb was blameless. Your guilt is transferred onto this lamb, and you'd kill the lamb so that there's this transferring, there's this punishment of your guilt onto another who's punished in your place. Page two. I'll let you read Zechariah 3 on your own. Don't miss it. Amazing passage. Look at Isaiah 52 to 53. The book of Isaiah chapter 52 is an amazing text where we see the prophet Isaiah predicting the coming of someone called the servant of the Lord. And when you read that through, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all over it. So the servant of the Lord is coming. And listen to what the servant will do. Isaiah 53, start with verses 4 through 6, right there in your notes. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God himself. But he was wounded For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Do you see this this punishment? Another is being punished in our place, being punished for our sins in our place. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. There we are. Right here, okay? We've all gone astray like sheep. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So if you will, God the Father took all this sin, here's the cross back here, and he put it on Jesus, laid on him the iniquity of us all. So your sin was laid upon Jesus. This is what Isaiah is prophesying 700 years before Jesus came. And then skip down to verse 10. It's right there in your notes. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Father, has put him, Jesus, to grief. I just want you to picture this. From eternity past, God the Father rejoiced in Jesus the Son. And the Son rejoiced in the Father. Heart-filling, passionate joy in each other's perfections, fellowship, love. From eternity past, never before had there been anything but this joyful, passionate love shared between each other. But because God loves you, He took your sin and put it on his son and crushed him. You feel that? Crushed his son because he loves you. Crushed him in your place. That is the most clear picture of God's love for you. And it is 
It's devastating. It is exhilarating. It is consoling. It's breaking. It's strengthening. That's God's love for you. He would look at you right here. He would look at his son, blameless, spotless, in whom he is well pleased. And he would take all of your sin, all of it, put it on Jesus and crush him for you. Do you feel that? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his, Jesus, soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's you. Okay? That's me. He will see. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The Father will prolong his days. That's an allusion to the resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He shall see and be satisfied. Offspring. A multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And I get this next line. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So he'll make many to be accounted righteous. Now just go down, keep reading, I'll come back to that accounted righteous in a moment. So here's four truths. One, God lays our iniquity on Jesus. Jesus bore our iniquities. Jesus then is smitten, crushed, wounded for our transgressions. Third, it was God himself who smites and crushes Jesus for our sin. Because see, it was the the Father's wrath against me that he poured out upon Jesus. He wasn't mad at Jesus for who Jesus was. He was mad at me for my sin. But in love for me, he poured out his wrath upon Jesus. And then fourth, Jesus, the righteous one, makes us to be accounted righteous. I think this is, it sounds like what's clearly taught in the New Testament. I'll show you a couple of scriptures in a moment. Our sins are credited to Jesus, and Jesus' perfect righteousness is credited to us. Now let me illustrate it like this. Okay, I put it on another board here. Here's Jesus. Okay, and we got our, you already read these words, right? We're judgmental and ornery and impure and impatient and critical and jealous and manipulative and complaining and pornography and bitter and righteous and cheating. And that's us. Self-righteous, did I get that there? Okay, all right. Jesus is perfect, morally righteous, worshipful, loving, righteous, merciful, God-centered, patient, gentle, kind, pure, steadfast, humble, temperate, truthful, righteous anger, submissive, faithful, And so on. So what God did was he took all of our sin and he put it on Jesus and punished Jesus, crushed Jesus because of our sin, crushed Jesus for it, and then took all of Jesus' perfect righteousness and credits it to us. Now, I was trying to think of how to do this. I'm going to do it like this. Where's my eraser? Okay, hang on. This is not easy, but it's going to happen. Okay, so, all right, just erase that for a second and erase this for a second. Okay. And then this is, this is Steve. Okay, you got that? Before saved. Okay, and that's Jesus. Okay, this little, and so what, what happens though is all of Steve's sin, how's I going to do this? Oh yeah, gets put upon Jesus. Okay, so I've got to erase Steve here now. 
This is, this is now Jesus, okay, with all of Steve's sin on him. Are you, are you seeing that? Okay, I hope you are because it's taken a lot of work. Okay, Jesus. And this is amazing. <laughs> this is amazing, okay. Steve. Jan knows how amazing this is, okay. I know better than Jan how amazing this is. But this is what Jesus has done. All of my sin was put upon Jesus. He was crushed, because I should have been crushed. And all of his moral perfection was accounted to me, credited to my account. Isaiah 53, make many to be accounted righteous. Okay, just keep that picture in mind. Let's keep going. Yeah, I just, I'm stoked. Man, I, I'm a happy guy. You can put your name there too, Jerry, if you wanted to. Okay. Okay, now on to the New Testament. Okay, so this is Old Testament hints. We've got the Exodus, the Passover. We've got the animal sacrifices. We've got the predictions of the servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. Read Zechariah 3 this afternoon, will you? Okay, I hope you will. But let's go ahead to the New Testament, number 9. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, born of a virgin. All right? Uh, he'd always existed, really crucial to understand this, Jesus had always been with God the Father, equal to God the Father, he was equally God. All things were created through Jesus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. So Jesus is fully God. God. Okay? And he became a man. And so he became fully God and man. You can see his humanity, he got tired, he got hungry. You can see his deity, he still the storm, he multiplied food, he forgave sin, okay, God and man. And when you read Jesus' life, you see someone who is morally perfect. He never sinned, never was impatient, never complained, always was kind, always cared for people. He got angry righteously and threw the money changers out of the temple. I love that story. That's pure, holy, righteous anger. I love that. He was compassionate to the widow who just lost her only son, raised him from the dead. Jesus loved, served, was faithful, centered on the Father, trusting the Father, obeying the Father, submissive to the Father, always, always perfectly righteous. No one else has ever been like Jesus. He's the only person who's ever been perfectly righteous. He's the only person who ever will be perfectly righteous. Just Jesus. He taught that he was the only way somebody could come to God. Now you might think, well, that sounds kind of narrow. I think you're looking at it wrongly. I think the stunning question is, in light of the fact that this is Steve and you, how can anyone come to God? That's the question. How could anybody come to God? And it's, you can think, oh, nobody can. We're all toast, which would be accurate, except for Jesus. So we shouldn't see John fourteen six as like, well, that's kind of narrow. Uh, it's a glorious truth that there's a way to come to God. And the reason that Jesus is the way and the only way is that only Jesus. What are the two pieces? What's the first one? Punishment. And the second one is perfection, moral perfection. Only Jesus provides punishment, someone else being punished for your sins in your place, and only Jesus provides moral perfection that can be given as a gift to you, a, a credit to your account. 
Number 13, I just mentioned, if, imagine if you were an Israelite and you heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You, you think about the pictures that would come into your mind? Oh my goodness. You mean lamb, sacrifices, temple, lamb of God takes away the sins of the world? Bing! You would have got it, wouldn't you? That's the whole point. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he told his disciples about his upcoming death and resurrection. This was the main reason he came to earth. Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that was his reference for himself, must suffer many things. Can you imagine Jesus looking in the eye and saying, I'm going to have to suffer many things. And they, they, they were very puzzled. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He taught in Mark 10, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, then right before he was crucified, the night before, Thursday night, he celebrated the Passover meal. Jewish, Jesus was Jewish, the disciples were all Jewish. Their tradition was to celebrate the Passover meal together, and so they did that. And in the course of the Passover meal, Jesus said something that would have been very shocking to them, and that he said that this is all about him, and that the bread from now on was going to be a picture of his broken body, and that the wine from now on would be a picture of his shed blood, and that he wants them to remember his death from now on by coming together regularly and celebrating Passover communion. And so you can read what Paul writes here. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Okay, top of the next page. And so that's what happened. Jesus was crucified. Okay, he was beaten, scourged, mocked, crucified. And crucifixion was a horrifying way to die. Illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified because it was so ghastly and long and, and, uh, and terrible. But as terrible as the physical pain would have been, Infinitely worse, and I don't, I'm not uh, overstating it by saying it that way, infinitely worse for Jesus. Hard for us to get our minds around this. But infinitely worse for Jesus was that never before, let me put it positively, forever, God the Father had been in loving fellowship with him. And he'd been in loving fellowship with the Father. The Father delighting in him, and he delighting in the Father. Maybe some of you have experienced some of the heart pain that can come from a, re a breached relationship where there used to be joy and love and then it's over and it's extremely painful. But if you could just somehow imagine infinite love and delight being shared and then having change from the Father. Father turns his back on Jesus. Father pours his wrath out upon Jesus. The Father forsakes Jesus. And so you can feel a little bit why Jesus would say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was being forsaken by the Father. He knew why. But he knew it, the pain of being forsaken by the Father. Isaiah 53.10, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
Because he loves you. That's why. That's why he crushed his own son. That's why Jesus is willing to be crushed. I don't want to make it sound like the Father and Jesus were at odds in this. The Father crushed the Son. Jesus was willing to be crushed. The Father, I think, crushed his Son with sobs, if you will. So there was a a complexity of feelings and a dynamic that was going on here. And Jesus felt the pain of being forsaken by the Father. And then just before he died, he said, it's finished. It is finished, which means that Everything necessary for you to be saved was accomplished, done. Everything. And he died, was buried, and just as he said, he rose from the dead. You can read Luke 24, 5 through 7 on your own. So the point is 18, that Jesus accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. Okay? First P, punishment. You also could use the word propitiation if you want to use a a theological term, which I hope you will love this word and think about it. Propitiation. It's not a word we use often at all today. For wrath to be propitiated means that wrath is appeased or assuaged. And what it means is that the Father looks down upon me and he feels wrath because of my sin. So there's wrath in the Father that has to be Vent it has to be expressed. It has to be accomplished. And so there's like a lava flow of wrath coming towards me, and the Father chooses to divert it and have it pour out upon Jesus instead. But since all of God's wrath against me is poured out upon Jesus, since all of God's wrath against Steve Fuller is poured out upon Jesus, how much wrath does Steve Fuller need to receive from God? None! Propitiation is a glorious word because it means that since Jesus absorbed all of God's wrath, which I deserved, he absorbed it in himself, there is never a time when I will ever have even an inkling of wrath from God against me because of Jesus, not because of me. Please the Father to crush him. So that's P, punishment, Or propitiations, maybe better, but I didn't want to leave with that one. So, your choice. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 4.10 And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Imagine a father sending his son into the gas chamber. That's love. That's the father's love for you. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus, you go, and it's going to break my heart, but I'm going to crush you for the sins of the people. So there's the P, punishment. And then the second P is Perfection or perfect righteousness. Now let me explain this because I want you to make make a difference here between 
When God saves you, he starts a work of changing your heart so you start to become more, really, actually morally righteous in your behavior and thoughts and deeds, right? I am more righteous now than I was 20 years ago. And by God's work, I'll be more righteous 10 years from now than I am now. So there's a gradual work of increasing righteousness that God does in us. That's called sanctification. Very different. We're not saved based on our sanctification. That'd be scary because there's a lot of unsanctification in me still. We know we're saved because of justification, which is different. Perfect righteousness is credited to my accounts. I don't become perfectly righteous. But perfect righteousness is credited to my account. And so when God sees me, he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness clothing me. Is there sin in me now? Yes. Does God treat me with any regard to that sin that's in me now? No. His whole demeanor towards me is as someone who is clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness, which means that when you trust Jesus, the very first time you trust him, instantly, everything changes. Wrath is poured out, propitiated, and God couldn't be more passionately devoted to your good from now and forever. He couldn't be. Because you're morally righteous in Christ. Jesus' moral perfection is on you. You stand before God clothed with Jesus' moral perfection. And that's the demeanor and the response and the acceptance and the joy and the love and the devotion that he has to you because of that perfection. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake... For our sake. Here's another description of God's love. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Sin, guilt, punished for our sin. Him who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's referring to the gift of righteousness that's given to me, not the change of righteousness that happens gradually. Quiz time. What's the change of righteousness that happens gradually in me? sanctification. What's the gift of perfect righteousness that's credited to me? Justification. Which one are you saved on the basis of? Justification. Oh, man, I'm really... Good job. That makes me really, really happy. Because if you get this, oh, your confidence before a holy, perfect God will be strong. And if you base it on how good you've been, it won't be strong. Okay? One more verse. Philippians 3.9. Paul prays that he would be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, the gift of righteousness from God that depends on faith. It comes by faith. That's justification. Okay, now a couple of passions and practices. When we take seriously God's holiness, and our sin. I want us to be a church which takes seriously God's holiness. One day you're going to stand before a holy God and you're going to see God's holiness then. And the right time to get in touch with God's holiness is sooner rather than later. Spend time pondering the holiness of God, the perfection of God, the purity of God, the Perfection which sets him infinitely apart everything else of, of who God is. And take seriously our sin. When we take seriously God's holiness and our 
sinfulness, we're left with a burning question. Okay, And I hope this is a question that has burned in you when you first were saved and that you still recollect the importance of the question now that you've been saved. But the question is, how can I ever be on good terms with him? How's that possible? How's that possible? How can I be on good terms with him? It should raise the question. Okay? The answer is, in astonishing love and mercy, God provided the answer in the person of his own son, Jesus. Jesus experienced the complete punishment that we deserve. And Jesus lived the perfect righteousness we should have lived. God provided the answer in Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, life. No one comes to the Father but through me as punishment and as perfection. Okay, so what do we do? How do we get our sins credited to Jesus and Jesus righteous and punished in Jesus? And how do we get Jesus' righteousness credited to us so we're accepted in, in Christ? How do we do that? Faith. It's the only way. Faith. Faith alone. Only by faith. I just want to unpack a little bit what faith is here so that you don't... I hope you don't say, well, yes, I, I did that five years ago. I had faith five years ago. I, I went forward. I accepted Jesus. Let me try to unfold faith for you. Faith is not just agreeing that Jesus died on the cross. Does Satan agree that Jesus died on the cross? Absolutely. Is Satan justified? No. Okay. No, not, a, not a trick question. Faith is not just agreeing to certain things about Jesus. Faith is trusting Jesus. It means that you see who Jesus is. You see his death on the cross. You see his resurrection. You see his promises. You see who he is as the, the treasure of your life. And you trust yourself to him. You trust your past, present, future to him. You trust your salvation to him. You trust your sexual lifestyle to him. You trust your use of money to him. You trust your, whether you're going to forgive this person or not to him. You trust your guilt to him, your shame to him, your joys to him, your accomplishments to him, your future to him. You trust him as your savior, dying on the cross for you. You trust him as your Lord. I want you to run my life, Jesus. You trust him as your all-satisfying treasure. To know you, look at you. To know you would be everything to me. I want to know you. Lord, Savior, treasure. When you trust Jesus, you look to Jesus, you trust him. That moment, all your sins are paid for by Jesus. And all of his perfect righteousness is credited to you. And that's what Abraham experienced. Look at Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him as Righteousness, a, a lifetime of perfect righteousness. Now, this was before Jesus died on the cross. Old Testament believers, there's a passage in Hebrews 9, 13, 14, 15. Just jot this down. How were Old Testament believers' sins paid for? The cross was retroactive to cover their sins. How was Abraham credited righteousness? Jesus' perfection was credited to Jesus back in Genesis 15:6. Old Testament saints saved, same as New Testament saints are saved. But now, it's not, it's not that we start by faith in Jesus, we get saved, and then we kind of move along our life and try to earn acceptance with God by being good enough. It's faith from start to finish. So, this morning I sinned, this morning you sinned. 
And it's real easy for us to think, okay, now if I've sinned, I've got to, before I can come back to God, I've got to have done something good. Okay, I went to church. That should work. That should count. So this afternoon I can, I'll be in God's good graces. That's not how it works. You sinned this morning. Immediately, Jesus, I'm sorry. I trust you. Immediately, that sin upon Jesus, his righteousness upon you, things are good. Immediately, by faith alone. Not by trying to be good enough. So I want to make sure that none of you are under the burden of thinking that God's temperature of love for you rises and falls depending on on how many good things that you've done. We obey on the basis of perfect acceptance from God through Jesus. That's there. It's done. It's sealed, signed, sealed, delivered. It's in the bank. It's been accomplished. And then on the basis of that perfect acceptance by God, the joy of knowing that he's rejoicing over us to do us good, he will provide all the wisdom we need, all the strength we need, all the heart satisfaction in his presence that we need as we move out into and live radical, bold, sacrificial lives of love in our neighborhoods, with the poor, in our families, at the workplace, the the foundation of being completely accepted by God releases us then into a life of radical, risky love because there's nothing to lose. It is secure. God will cover you. I I had lunch with somebody on uh, Wednesday, a guy who doesn't know the Lord. And uh, I was just praying that God, because I I know him quite well, we've we've talked a lot, and I wanted to, to kind of be bold and raise some questions. And what helped me was, I'm accepted by the Father through Jesus. My foundation is absolutely rock-solid secure. I can risk anything for Jesus' sake. I have nothing to lose. My eternity is in the bank, in the bag, in the bank. And I'm not talking about money there, okay? It's secure, as, you know, Brink's security truck would be or whatever. So it's secure. And so you can be bold and take risks for the gospel because your future is in the hands of a God who is absolutely devoted to you because of Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's how it works. So I don't want you to feel like you're striving to gain acceptance from God by your goodness or your devotion. Trust Jesus. Righteousness. Punishment, perfection, done. Acceptance from the Father. 100% pure, passionate acceptance from the Father. He's devoted to doing you good. He will care for all of your needs. He'll work everything out for your good. If he sent Jesus and crushed Jesus for you, he's not going to let you go at this point. He's going to do everything that you need. And so you are secure. You are secure. You can give. You can forgive. You can love. You can be patient. Oh, if there's pain in your marriage, you can just love and love and love because you are secure. Jesus is for you. The Father is for you. Your, sec- your future is secure because of the cross. Now, one other application, briefly. When you're on your deathbed, okay, I would guess maybe I'll be at some of your deathbeds or you might be at my deathbed. All right? Death happens. Okay? When you are on your deathbed, what are you going to think to yourself when you realize I've got a couple more days, maybe a couple more hours, Where's peace going to come? Not because well, I went to church almost every Sunday, read my Bible really regularly, you know, I, I gave money to the poor. That's not going to do it. Listen, you know how plagued you are with guilt now. 
right, for just little stuff. I'm plagued with guilt. I mean, there's a, you can always find stuff to feel guilty about. That's not going to do it, nor should it do it. And it can't do it. Your only plea, and the only plea you need, which is a massive plea, is Jesus' blood and righteousness. Just Jesus. And I'm connected to Jesus by trusting him. Faith is the glue that connects me to the one who was punished in my place, who is perfect in my, my place. It's Jesus. Jesus, I'm in you. I'm going, to pre- I'm going to be standing next to you before the Father, and I'll be covered. That's what I'm going to say to you if you're on your deathbed. That's what I want you to say to me if you're next to me at my deathbed. Because that's the foundation for our eternity in the presence of a holy and righteous and loving God. God demonstrates his love for us, Paul said, in that while we were still sinners, God had Christ die for us. God crushed him. That's God's demonstration of love. Let that demonstration of love fill you, devastate you, strengthen you, console you, make you confident, and make you love Jesus more than anything. Let's stand together. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for some, if you're here and you have never repented of your sins, put your trust in Jesus, please, please, do do that now. Trust Jesus right now. You do not need to be good enough to trust Jesus. First you trust Jesus, he'll go to work in changing your life. Trust him as you are. Trust him right now. Look at him. Look at his love on the cross. Look at what God's done. How can you turn away from him and just say, Forget it. Trust him. Trust him. I want to pray also for some of you who have been under doubts about whether God can love you because of something you've done in the past. Do you see the transfer that's taken place of all of your sin being put upon Jesus and all of Jesus' perfect righteousness being put upon you? That's the cross. He did that for you. You didn't earn that. It's like, well, I was so bad, he couldn't have done that. That's the whole point. You were so bad, and that's why he did that. You're bad. Okay? I'm bad. We're bad. That's why he did it, because we're bad. Don't let your badness keep you from believing he did it. That's why he did it. It's the whole rationale for what he did. Trust Jesus. Let the burden of guilt drop off your shoulders and receive his free gift of forgiveness and righteousness. So, Lord, move upon us right now, I pray. I pray for those here who don't know you yet that right now they would repent of their sins and put their trust in you. Please, Father, do that right now, I pray. And that the chains would fall off, hearts would go free, that they would feel the amazing gift of your forgiveness and righteousness, your salvation, you pour your love into their hearts. Do it, Lord, I pray. Do it for the glory of your name. For those who struggle under guilt, let them see the cross for what it really is. Jesus' death paid for that sin. Stop feeling guilty about it. Trust him. Receive from him. Look at the truth of the gospel. Stop it. Trust him. Oh, Lord, help them, I pray. Help them. Help them. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that as we see how much we've been forgiven, and the costliness of your love, 
that we would proclaim Jesus everywhere we go because we love Jesus so much. Put that upon us.